say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. This is the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and I so appreciate you joining me today. I'm so pleased to have as my guest, Patricia Bryan. She is on the faculty of the University of North Carolina School of Law and is co-author of Midnight Assassin, along with her husband, Tom Wolfe. It's a book about a rural murder in 1900 Iowa. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So this really is a wonderful bit of history you were able to uncover here. Some of my favorite true crime stories are the ones that are not in the public consciousness, but still really compelling and emotional. Let me ask you, where did you first hear about the murder of John Hosick, and what inspired you to write a book about it? Oh, well, that's a good question, um, because I don't think of myself as a true crime writer, but I do teach a course here in the law school um, called Law and Literature. And in preparing for that course, I looked at lists of books that were used as readings. And when I looked at them, many of the works were classics, and they were all by men, um, you know, Camus and Kafka and Shakespeare, except one short story that was written by a woman, Susan Glassville. And... In the story, and I won't tell you much about the story because it is a classic and you can find it in anthologies, it's a murder that is in the story and there are men who are investigating it and their wives actually find the evidence that shows that this woman had been abused by her husband um, and they hide the evidence because they feel that the men will use that to convict her. And it's a story about injustice and other themes that 
we talk about in my law and literature class. And as I read the story, I was interested in how Susan Glasspool, who was not a lawyer, had come to write about the legal system in such a powerful way. And I found out by reading her memoir that she had been a reporter when she was very young, not a criminal reporter. Um, she didn't normally report on crimes, but in this particular case, she was sent to a small town in Iowa to report on a murder trial of a woman who had been accused of killing her husband. And I was interested, of course, in the case that had inspired her, and I did a lot of research into well, using microfilm and um, going to um, historical societies and libraries and paging through old newspapers and talking to people, and I was able eventually to uncover the actual trial that she had written about and reported for the Des Moines Daily News, one of the top newspapers of the day. And of course, at that time, this was in 1900, was um, the year of the trial, there wasn't any other media aside from the newspapers, and so she described this murder trial in a very compelling way and very visual way in order to keep her readers interested. And actually, as I started investigating the trial, um, the woman, Margaret Hasek, who was accused of the murder, became sort of a, a primary figure in my mind. And I tried to put myself in the situation of Susan Glaspell, who was, again, a young woman reporting on this trial of a farm woman. Susan Glaspell was a very educated um, woman, and she was reporting on a, a society that was so different from her own, a farm woman who was isolated, although she had many children, and worked so hard. And Susan Glaspell really did a lot of investigation into her life. And so the story behind the story became part of my goal. Can you talk about the Hasek family in the couple of days leading up to the murder? Oh, yeah. Well, again, they were in a very rural part of Iowa. The Hasek's had a large farm. Of course, it was in Mr. Hasek's name. Um, they had they had been married, Margaret and John Hasek, for 33 years. He was 59 and she was 57, and they had 10 children. Nine of them were alive, and eight of them, I guess seven of them, were living with the couple at the time of this murder. And Mr. Hasek was not feeling well. Um, the day before the murder, he had gone with one of his young sons to the coal bank, and they were collecting coal to use in their stove to heat the house. And, of course, Iowa in December, it was very cold. They went home, and apparently, from all testimony, and we have the testimony of the children, 
and of Margaret Hasek, it was evening like many others. Margaret and her daughter, one of her daughters, made dinner. They didn't all eat together, but uh, made dinner for the son and John Hasek when they came home. Margaret and her daughters did their sewing in the evening. John Hasek played with his younger sons. As I say, they had nine living children. Um, Seven of them were at home at the time of the murder. So it was really a crowded house. And Margaret and John did have, I should say not seven, Eric, it was five of the children. Um, One of them, the others, the other four were married and living away from home. But still, it was a very crowded household with five children and John and Margaret Hasek. All of the rooms were very small, um, so they were very close together. So the family eventually retires. The children go to bed the earliest. John is tired from his trip and goes to bed as well. Margaret joins him later. Close to midnight, she awakens. She hears what she describes as the sound of two pieces of wood hitting each other. How did things go from there? Um, She was asleep next to her husband, she says. And again, we only have her testimony about this night. But she was asleep next to her husband. Um, As she says, she slept on the outside of the bed. The bed was up against the wall, so he was next to the wall. It was a small bed. It was what we would call a basically a three-quarters bed. It was smaller than a full-size bed, and they were not small people. She weighed 160 pounds, I think, and he was larger, so they were certainly very close together. And just as you say, she said she was awakened by a noise, sound of two boards being hit together. She also claimed that she saw a flash of light and heard the door close. She left the bedroom and called to her three oldest children who were sleeping upstairs. They came down the stairs, heard her voice, sounded upset. She said, I think Pa has been hurt. They came down the stairs. The oldest son had a lamp, and they looked at John Hasek, whose head was bloody and swollen, I guess is the way to describe it. He did speak. They asked what happened. The son asked what happened. Um, and he's, you've been hurt. And John Hasek said, um, no, I'm not hurt. I'm just sick. But of course, they could tell that he had been hit in the head and cut in the head. And two of the children ran to the neighbors to try to bring people to the house and to get the older children who lived nearby, most of whom lived nearby, One of the neighbors rode on a horse to get the doctor. And it's interesting because apparently as he went to get the doctor, he woke the neighbors as he went, sometimes just by shouting out that John Hasek has been hurt. And the neighbors gradually started coming to the farm One of the older sons lived nearby, 
and it worked as a hired hand on another farm, and he was one of the first to be notified. And, you know, he was suspected from the beginning, at least by one of the neighbors, but apparently he had not ridden the horse. His landlord touched the horse to see if it was sweaty, and it was not. John, this young um, John Hasek seemed very surprised and upset by the news of his father um, being hurt. He went to the farmhouse right away, and as I say, through the night, different farmers, primarily men, who knew John Hasek, gathered around not only the bed, but in the outside rooms and outside. So there was a, a lot of people there. And the doctor didn't arrive until sometime early in the morning. It was approximately midnight when Margaret Hasek said the attack had occurred. Um, when the doctor got there, he realized there was nothing he could do. Um, John Hasek had been hit, as the doctors later found, by an axe in the head, and he had been struck twice, once with the sharp end of the axe and then by the blunt end of the axe. So he was cut very badly, and then his head was smashed. It was really amazing that he lived until morning and Actually, surprisingly, too, he was able to speak a few words. And it is notable that the neighbors, now we have the testimony not just of the family, but also of the neighbors and the doctor, who testified that Margaret Hasek sat by his bed, cried, got cloths to wipe away the blood, held his hand, and was very upset by what had happened. John Hasek died um, early in the morning, as I say, and again, it's amazing that he lived so long, but there was no medical treatment, and I'm sure there wouldn't have been today. I can't imagine um, there would have been, given the evidence of how violently he was assaulted. So as you mentioned, the house is filled with people, and they, they watch in horror as John slowly expires. A couple of guys decide to go out and check on the axe. Can you explain the significance of the axe under the granary? Sure. It's an interesting story because the men are standing around talking, and the granary, um, which is where the family stored tools, among other things, a kind of shed, um, was not far from the house, and when the men were standing there, one of them saw the handle of the axe sticking out from underneath. And so, really without any regard to the evidentiary value of the axe, they pulled it out and started to examine it. They passed it from hand to hand. They saw some hairs on the axe. They saw what they thought was blood, sort of dark spots on the axe, and of course, they came to the conclusion, as the county attorney and the sheriff did later, that that was, as one said, the axe that done the deed. And again, it was pretty just, dis- I mean, there were no fingerprints. Um, the hair, there was still the hair, but whether that had come from animal hair under the granary or human hair was never definitively 
determined. Um, but what was important about that axe was not only um, the conclusion that it probably was the murder weapon, um, but also a couple of things. One, although initially the motive was suspected to be robbery, and certainly Margaret Hasek said there was an intruder. The story she told would support that view. Um, but it seemed odd that the intruder would have used the family axe and then left it on the property. Um, it seemed much more likely that it was someone who knew where the axe might have been kept. I mean, uh, uh, one of the younger sons had put the axe away the night before, and initially, although he changed his story later, he said that he remembered putting the axe inside of the granary. His father thought it would snow, so he put it inside the granary. So did someone come in from the outside, know it was in the granary, and then discard it? Um, or was it someone who knew where the axe was stored, and if so, why was it thrown beneath the granary? You know, those were all unanswered questions. But I will say that the axe was a piece of evidence that the county attorney saw from the beginning as suggesting um, that it was not someone from the outside. The other interesting thing that neighbors noticed was the disposition of Shep, the family dog. Right, right. That's an interesting story. One of the sons, and this was right after they discovered that um, John Hasek had been so badly hurt, Um, they wanted to warm up the house. It wasn't kept warm, so warm during the night, of course, so he had gone out to get more coal, and Shep, the family dog, um, who was normally a very active dog, well, there were a couple of, I mean, one thing was that none of the children or Margaret Hasek remembered having heard Shep bark. I mean, Margaret Hasek had heard Shep bark at some point before she went to sleep, but she hadn't been awakened by the barking. So that again, suggested to the county attorney that the deed was done by someone that the dog knew um, and recognized. And also when this Will Hasek went out to get the coal, as I started to say, um, the dog wouldn't follow him and acted as if it were afraid or even, according to Will Hasek, as if he were drugged. And neighbors um, said that as well, that Shep, you know, kept his head down and seemed not to be himself. So, you know, again, you wonder, well, which way does that point? If it was someone in the family, perhaps Shep would not have barked, but would someone in the family have drugged the dog. You know, what point would there have been to that? Both the defense and the prosecution later at the trial used it as evidence for their sides, but initially it was something that the family noticed and something that the neighbors corroborated 
but it was unclear which way that pointed. So County Attorney George Clemmer comes to the farm. Can you describe him and talk about how he proceeds with the investigation? Sure. He was a fairly young man. He had graduated from Simpson College, which was a very good um, college in Indianola, biggest city near this farm. He was young. He was smart. He was ambitious. And this was his first criminal trial. And from the beginning, or it seems in looking back at the story, he wanted to find the person who was responsible. It was a time of somewhat transition in, you know, the legal system because, I mean, people in rural Iowa and other rural parts of the state and really the country didn't have a lot of faith in the legal system. It wasn't that long ago since there were lynchings in Iowa as well as other states. They didn't expect that the legal system would be able to punish the guilty party, so they would go about it themselves. And Clamor wanted to prove that he was up to his job and I think had a real goal to show that the legal system could be trusted. So, again, he was very ambitious. He was passionate about this case, as it turned out. He started his investigation. I mean, he came in um, that afternoon along with the sheriff um, and the coroner, and he investigated the scene, and later he told the newspaper, well, you know, he didn't want to put any fat, he didn't want to make any conclusions. He was just trying to investigate the scene. But it did appear, reading about how he conducted the investigation, it did appear that he started to suspect Margaret Hasek very early. And part of that was because he felt she was lying and if she was lying about, well, primarily he thought she was lying about not being awakened before this blow. I mean, it seemed incredible to him that she could be lying so close to her husband with the murderer, the attacker, having to reach over her, and the attacker could have hit John Hasek two times. And Clamor later said, he thought to himself, how could a woman, a woman with children, now, you know, her youngest child was 13 at the time, so she didn't have babies, but how could a woman with children have slept that soundly? Sort of blaming her for sleeping that soundly, I think. And he also said not only how could she have slept through until, you know, she heard that sound of the two boards being hit together, but also why, according to her story, did she call her children first? I think he he thought it was very odd that she hadn't called her husband first, especially because John Hasek did have a big rifle in the corner of the bedroom, and of course, according to her story, she didn't know that he was hurt immediately. Um, she assumed that when, you know, she ran out of the room, hard to know exactly why, but even if he was hurt, Clamor said, well, she should have looked at him first, turned to him first, and that's not what Margaret Hosick said she did. You know, and the finding of the X only cemented 
that theory in his mind. We will be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So Margaret Hasek is arrested immediately after the funeral and escorted to jail. And then an inquest uh, was held. And at first, public opinion is against her, buoyed by circulating stories that there were marital difficulties between them. Well, one of the things that had come out at the inquest, many of the neighbors had testified And one of the stories that had been known in the neighborhood um, for years was that there had been a lot of trouble in the family and that John Hasek was, uh, that Margaret Hasek was afraid of her husband. And there were many times when she had gone to her neighbors and told them that John Hasek had threatened her, had threatened one of the children, that she was afraid he would hurt someone in the family. And in fact, she had said on a couple of occasions that, you know, why doesn't the good Lord take him away? Or I wish he were dead. We won't have any peace until he's dead. And she was clearly distressed and afraid. She had often come in tears um, pleading for help. The men, the neighbor men, didn't want to hear her stories. As they said, private family matters should be kept in the family. As one of them said, I don't trouble my mind with family matters. So they had told her about a year before the murder when there was one of the worst conflicts not to talk about it anymore. And the children testified at the inquest that there had been some trouble in the family, um, but that their parents had reconciled about a year before. Now, whether that reconciliation actually took place, whether it had held, of course, that's an open question. But certainly it was the sense 
of the neighborhood that was communicated to the county attorney and to the sheriff that Margaret Hasek had been afraid of her husband and that he had abused her. I mean, they didn't talk a lot about physical abuse. I mean, abuse was not talked about a lot at that time in that place. Um, men were sort of the kings of the castle, and the women didn't see other women as much as men saw other men. And whether Margaret Hasek might have been ashamed of it, it's hard to know. She certainly went out of the norm by even talking to her neighbors. Um, she pleaded with them when she came to them not to tell her husband. She talked about getting a separation from her husband at various points. All of the property and all of everything they had was in his name. So she was certainly financially dependent on him completely. And, you know, divorce was something that was extremely rare, um, certainly in this kind of rural community. So, as one neighbor said, she always talked about it, but she never was able to move forward. Uh, and it, it, it is true that the neighbors knew that John Hasek had a temper, um, and they talked about what could be done. I mean, a couple of them even talked about maybe he should be committed to an insane asylum. I mean, they had some fears for the family's safety, but, you know, he was a respected, well-known pillar of the community. And there really wasn't anything that they perhaps were able and certainly were not willing to do. So it went on for quite a few years. And again, when the neighbors finally sat her down and the children and said, we do not want to hear anything more about it. She said, well, they had reconciled. And perhaps they had, perhaps they hadn't. But she certainly didn't talk about it. But again, that was a story that was known in the neighborhood. It was hard for the neighbors to buy the story of an intruder. I mean, the houses were far apart. There was no one, at least none of them knew, that John Hasek had had any enemies. You know, he had quarreled a little bit with one of the neighbors, had a political quarrel, but it hadn't been a violent one, and that neighbor didn't seem to have any real complaint about John Hasek. So the story about the intruder was hard to buy. Susan Glassnell, the reporter that you mentioned earlier, would eventually be in her court as well. Susan Glassnell, initially, in her early reporting, was as harsh, I would say, in describing Margaret Hasek as anyone. In one of the early stories, anyone in the newspapers business, one of the things that Susan Glassnell wrote um, describing her, she said, though past 50 years of age, she is tall and powerful and looks like she would be dangerous if aroused to a point of hatred. You know, they described her in very masculine terms, um, as big and stout and, um, you know, steely eyes. And you know, she wasn't that different than many farm women in that she looked like she was able to do hard work. 
but they did paint her in these negative terms and masculine terms. Um, she certainly wasn't the epitome of fe- femininity. I think Susan Glaspell, and I do talk about this in the book, went through a kind of change in her opinion. Apparently, Susan Glaspell visited the farmhouse. And again, this was not her milieu. She had grown up in a very educated um, setting, had gone to college, was a very independent single woman in the journalism trade with great goals of success. And she was struck, and she talks about this in the memoir, by how different this farm woman's life was. And I think being in that farmhouse, it gave her a different sense of how isolated and difficult and different from her own this farm woman's life would have been like. And she began to talk about her in much more sympathetic Terms, you know, describing her as old and frail. Um, many of the newspapers, and at first Susan Glaspell, um, talked about how she didn't cry. You know, she wasn't seen to shed tears as a woman would have. Susan Glaspell stopped talking about her in those negative terms, and again talked about her with her head bowed, is very sad. And not that it necessarily had that much influence on the public's view of Margaret Hasek, but I think it does show a change in Susan Glaspell's own perspective on who this woman was. One of the things that I always find so fascinating about this time period are men's perceptions of women and the virtues of the fairer sex. With the exception of a very few violent murderers, Lizzie Borden being most notable, men during this time weren't able to imagine women as killers. But if it had to happen, if a woman had to kill someone, her delicate constitution required something more indirect. Poison, for instance, right? Right. Well, that's easier to do in a way when you're preparing the food. I mean, that is interesting because you think, well, an axe, I mean, the defense argued this. It wasn't a, um, it, it didn't seem like a woman to kill with an axe. Poison was easy to get in a rural community. Um, and, and so wouldn't she have used poison, killed, just as you said, Eric, in a more feminine way? And that was a stereotype. But, of course, the, the prosecution argued that she had done it with an axe as a way of showing that she was so masculine. You know, she wasn't a real woman to sort of turn the jury's, the jury, the men on the jury against her. So, yeah, Lizzie Borden was another exception in 1892. Of course, Lizzie Borden was acquitted. Now, everyone after she was acquitted, there were no other suspects, and it became, I think most people decided that she had done it. You know, Lizzie Borden took an axe, right, and gave her father 40 wax. So I think certainly the myth and the belief, even of people in Fall River, Massachusetts, was that Lizzie Borden was guilty even though she was acquitted. But you're exactly right. Violent means um, was not the way most women killed their husbands. 
So the family hires William Barry as an attorney, and he begins to build the defense. What is he focused on? I mean, William Barry was the real opposite of George Clammer, at least in style. I mean, William Barry was a much more experienced litigator. He had appeared in the courtroom many times. He was eloquent and, I mean, I said Clammer was passionate. Um, Barry was passionate also, but in a much more theatrical way. I mean, he was a big man. He talked loudly. He used his hands. You know, he really drew attention. And he was well known as a politician and as a lawyer, a very energetic presence in the courtroom. And he knew from the beginning that there was circumstantial evidence against uh, Margaret Hasek. And he also knew that the neighbors and the county attorney had been convinced, were convinced, that she had the motive. So it looked like she had the means and the opportunity and the motive, which is, you know, can make for a pretty tight case against her. But he really followed the strategy that the lawyers had used in the Lizzie Borden case to get that acquittal. And that strategy was to try to paint Margaret Hasek as a woman who was just like the wives and daughters of the men on the jury. And if they didn't want to think, and they didn't, that their own wives and daughters could be capable of such a violent act if they saw Margaret Hasek as, you know, one of them, it seemed unlikely that they would want to convict her, would be able to convict her. And as I say, that was really what had worked for Lizzie Borden. Um, you know, she, she wore lace and hats and cried and broke down. And her lawyer had argued, you know, it's against human nature that a woman could kill in such a violent way. And the men on the jury, despite the mountains of circumstantial evidence, agreed. And I think that, I mean, Barry also argued that the circumstantial evidence was not definitive. They hadn't been able to prove that the hairs on the axe were human hairs as opposed to animal hairs. Um, he focused on the reconciliation that, you know, there was no reason any longer to think she had a motive to kill. Um, he focused on the fact also that all of the children supported her story. I mean, that's a remarkable point, that all of the children um, not only supported the story of the intruder, although they hadn't seen anything but or heard anything, but supported you know her distressing call upstairs. Um, the fact that she seemed not to know, the fact that she had been sitting by the bed of her husband all night. Um, also, neighbors and doctors, as I said, said that. They also said there hadn't been trouble for the last year. In fact, they really downplayed the trouble um, that had been in the family even before that. They knew that the neighbors had testified about it. But not only the children, but also Margaret Hasek denied that there had been trouble, which is also pretty amazing because she must have known that the neighbors would testify 
she wasn't asked at the trial um, for various reasons about the troubles. But at the inquest, she completely denied that, um, you know, they had argued. In fact, she said to the men on the inquest jury, I hope you don't think I did it. I loved him too much for that. You know, whether she was not wanting to speak ill of the dead, whether you know she was ashamed of it or felt in some way responsible for it or had finally taken to heart the you know the warning don't talk about family matters outside of the family um in any case certainly the defense strategy primarily rested on proving that she was the kind of woman that the jury should recognize as one not capable because of her sex, of doing a murder this way. So it was, again, a strategy that worked with Lizzie Borden, and in fact it worked with other women. Men were hesitant to think they were capable of a murder. So the prosecution does a couple of things to drive their case home. They bring in a parade of witnesses who testify that Margaret Hosick had approached them petrified that her husband was going to do something in one of his spells or rages. In addition, Clemmer does a bit of detective work and works out some basic math and draws some conclusions about the relationship between John and Margaret Hosick based on the birth of their first son. Can you talk about this? Sure. That that was a real find in our research because... In the trial, um, her brother, Margaret's brother, had misspoken about when they were married. And Clamor, just as you say, Eric, did a little bit of math in his head. And when he did that, um, came up with the notion that he presented to the jury that the first son had been conceived before they were married. As it happened... And I should say the defense absolutely claimed that that was not so, that there was no basis for that claim and that the brother had simply misspoken. When we were doing our research, we did find that, in fact, they had lied about the date of their marriage when they moved to Warren County. We were able to find the the marriage certificate in, you know, one of the archives. And when they came to Warren County, they moved their marriage quite a bit um, further back. So, again, the brother misstated it, but they had lied about it. So it was clear that the son, first son, was conceived before they were married. Margaret Hosick knew that. Probably the children didn't. But the prosecution use that both to show that this premarital sex, not that it was unknown at the time, but made her immoral, to show that she was lying, also to show that the marriage had never been a happy one. Um, It was sort of, you know, the story they told was sort of, or implied, was that she had sort of, John Hosick had been forced to marry her. So she had never loved him, and Presumably, he had never loved her. Now, as I say, they went on to have nine more children, and they did stay married, troubled though it might have been. 
Um, but yeah, that was an interesting point that the prosecution relied on a misstatement that I mean, it was only that, and yet it actually turned out to be true. Not that Margaret Hasek ever talked about that, but based on the records. So the jury reaches a decision. They find her guilty. Clemmer wins. And Margaret Hasek is sent to prison. And while she's in many ways an emotional wreck while there, it's also, as you point out in your book, probably a physical break for her from the rigors of farm life. And she only spends a year there. Can can you explain why? Sure. She only spends a year there. And just as you say, it was a, I wouldn't say a luxurious prison at all, but it was a big penitentiary. Um, They had just opened a wing for women. I mean, the women's wing was not especially crowded. There was a matron of women. Um, They did have not especially comfortable cells, but they did not, I mean, they didn't clean. They didn't do laundry. They did do some sewing. She did have access to books. Well, if she had been living in fear of her life, it was a change for the better. Now, of course, she missed her children terribly, and they came to visit her, and I think she was afraid of what was going to happen to the farm, but the whole family was talking to her defense lawyers, and they were giving her some hope. I mean, the defense lawyers thought that the behavior of the prosecution, and they did rely on that story about the birth of her first son and the premarital sex as being misbehavior in court, really not only inappropriate, but beyond the bounds of what a lawyer should be doing. And some of the language that the prosecution used, the defense thought was also, you know, outside of what was not only appropriate, but ethical. Um, so they were relying both on evidentiary problems and on the prosecutor's behavior. And I think they were telling her and her family that they had good grounds for appeal. And I think it, that made her feel perhaps more hopeful than she might have. Although, as I say, I think she really missed her children. Back after a few brief messages. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. 
find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era, when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. And we have returned for the final time. So she does get granted a second trial, and the prosecution rolled out the old testimony once again. What changed in the second trial to affect the outcome? Yeah, well, one thing was that there was a change of venue. And I think that really affected um, the atmosphere in the second trial. Instead of being held in Indianola, the closest city to the farm, and the courthouse was a fairly large courthouse, and there were crowds of people. It was a sensational, um, really theatrical performance, as people saw it. Crowds of people, many of whom knew John Hasek, who were attending the trial and, you know, knew about the problems in the family. And, of course, the murder was so immediate, also, the shock of it. That changed, of course, when the venue changed. People didn't know John Hasek. They didn't know Margaret Hasek. Um, They didn't know the stories. I mean, some of them, of course, had read the newspapers, but time had passed, um, and they hadn't been personally acquainted with the Hasek family. And also, Margaret Hasek changed. She had been a year in prison. She had aged, apparently. She looked much more frail. Whether her defense attorney suggested that she dress in a different way is hard to know. Um, she did, during the second trial, hold her grandchild on her lap, which is unusual in today's world. 
but she was allowed to hold her grandchild on her lap, which certainly, you can imagine, made her seem more, I guess you would say, womanly, certainly more motherly. Um, she cried in court, which she hadn't done in the first trial. So she presented a different aspect. And the women in the audience um, apparently made it more obvious that they were supported Margaret Hasek. You know, whether it was because they thought she had suffered enough or because they empathized with what she had gone through, perhaps with her husband on the farm, um, perhaps because they believed she was innocent. I mean, it, it, there's an interesting scene before the verdict is reached, after she had testified, at the end of that day, um, a line of women come up, and again, this is would never happen today, but come up to M- Margaret Hasek and shake her hand. You know, that's a pretty fascinating picture, so that it was clear that there was more support for Margaret than there was in the first trial. And I think both the change of venue and the um, support, the passage of time, her appearance, really made for a different courtroom experience, despite, as you say, Eric, the testimony was not that different. Well, I will say one thing. The defense had found a witness who testified that there had been a mysterious horseman who he had heard ride past his farm um, soon after Margaret Hasek said that her husband had been attacked. And also the defense sort of pointed the finger or suggested that another neighbor might be guilty. And, you know, juries often need, in order to acquit a defendant, some other story to latch onto. You know, it's sort of a conflict or a fight between who's telling the best story. And there wasn't much that the defense said in the first trial that suggested, well, if it wasn't her, who might it have been? And although they didn't really name a suspect, they had come up with a few other theories about what might have happened that at least were suggested to the jury. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. We really haven't addressed some of the other possible suspects, which some evidence uh, pointed to. There's one in particular, a neighbor named William Hain, and he's really an odd duck. On the night of the murder, when the Hasek children are running around in the dead of night for help, they get to the Haynes residence. And William Hain refuses to come, saying he saw a strange man outside his own home earlier that night. And after Clemmer questions him, Hain has a mental breakdown and is shipped off to an asylum. I mean, he's, he's certainly a suspicious character. And it's also learned that Margaret Hasek at one point had visited the Haynes farm and suggested to William Hain that he come and give her husband a good beating. Right, right. Um, to beat her husband um, until he, you know, got what he deserved. I'm not sure that she explicitly said to beat him to death, but to punish him for what he was doing. It, is, it really is interesting, as you say, because at the first trial he did not testify because he had been involuntarily committed to this insane asylum, 
or I shouldn't say, I mean, he'd been taken to an insane asylum. And his wife testified about this conversation with Margaret Hosick. And in fact, she was one of the most, what should I say, strongest witnesses against Margaret Hosick. And, you know, in terms of claiming how hard Margaret Hosick, not really how hard, but how Margaret Hosick wanted her husband to be her, to be dad, was always complaining about her husband, you know, blaming Margaret Hosick, really, for her husband's abuse. And, right, you don't know if that was in order to protect her husband to, uh, what, strengthen the case against Margaret Hosick. And he was a strange duck, as you put it. And, and and he was the one. He had had a political argument with John Hosick a few days before the murder. Again, no one thought it was especially It wasn't violent at that time when people witnessed it. But it was also clear when he did testify at the second trial, the defense was able to show that he was not always telling the truth. I mean, and it was in small details, but he did not come off as a trustworthy witness. I mean, the defense suggested, certainly the message was that he might be guilty. Um, why else would he have gone crazy? after he had been questioned by the defense attorney. You know, why else didn't he testify at the first trial? Um, why else was he making these false statements? Again, minor though they were, he was just not to be trusted, and perhaps he was the rightful suspect or the rightful killer. So the second trial ends in a hung jury. Can you talk about how that happened and what Margaret Hosick's life was like after that? Yeah, um, there was a hung jury, um, although I think there were only three people who, three of the men, I mean, it's interesting to note that all of the men, um, all of the jurors were men. The um, lawyers, of course, were both men. The judge was a man. I mean, they were the ones who were going to decide a jury of her husband's peers, as I think we say in the book, um, whether she was guilty or innocent. Only three men, of course, a different jury, voted in favor of her acquittal at the second trial. And, you know, hard to know. Again, as with the women, well, they might have been persuaded by their wives. That was possible. But, you know, whether they believed, well, she had suffered enough or, you know, she wasn't a threat to anyone, that certainly seemed to be the case. Or, in fact, that she might be innocent. So there was a hung jury. Um, she was released from prison and sent home. The county attorney said she would not be retried. Her health did not permit it, according to the county attorney, and that was probably so. She went back to Indianola. The farm had been sold by that point um, at auction, so she didn't go back to the farm. All of her children, and this is interesting too, had moved away, all but one. They had stayed around her so tightly during the trials, but as soon as the trial ended, they dispersed, went to all different parts of the country, really, 
and she lived with one of her sons. Children came back to visit her, and a few of them stayed in Iowa. But she lived for another, I don't know, more than 10 years. She died in 1916. You know, there aren't any written records about her life afterwards, although one of her grandchildren did remember her. She remembered her as very cold and withdrawn, which is perhaps not surprising. She died, apparently, peacefully in 1916. There was a short obituary, didn't mention anything about the murder trial, mentioned her as a faithful churchwoman, um, loving her church and her children, attentive to her children. And then she was buried in Warren County Cemetery right next to her husband. And, you know, that's a that's an image that stays with me. Of course, we visited the cemetery and there's a marker um, that marks their graves But there they are. I know this is complete speculation, but after reading your book, I believe that while Margaret Hosick didn't commit the murder herself, she knew about it. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that she wouldn't have been aware of a man (laughs) standing over her with an axe while she's lying in bed. And her reaction afterwards was, was pretty suspicious as well. But one piece of evidence that we didn't talk about earlier was her chemise, which she wore to bed, which the authorities never bothered to collect as evidence, by the way, until it had been ruined by water. But Clemmer did examine it the day he came out and noticed that there was only blood on the back of it. I mean, if she'd done the swinging, you'd think that there would be a splatter of of blood on the front. Do you think there is something to to that, that she was in cahoots with someone else? Do, do you have your own theory of what happened? Yeah, I mean, just that point about the chemise, it again sort of shows, as with the axe, how poorly the evidence was handled, which is, of course, sometimes still true today, unfortunately. But the chemise, people remembered the men on the inquest jury remembered seeing the chemise, and as you say, there was blood on the back, and that really would have been good for the defense. I mean, there was blood spattered all over the walls, and unless she had changed, you would think if she had been the attacker, there would have been blood on her front. Now, she claimed, and this supports her story, that the blood was on her back because she was lying with her back to her husband, and so the blood had sprayed on her back. And this accords with your hypothesis, Eric, is that uh, another possibility is that maybe she was standing with her back turned. Um, maybe one of her sons. I think many people, and I, you know, I tend to this theory as well, one of her sons might have done it. She had her back turned. She knew who had done it, and yet she was willing to take the fall. I mean, it's interesting to me, and maybe it's because I have three sons, to imagine that one of those sons wouldn't have spoken up. I mean, if they were guilty, perhaps they didn't if they were guilty because they thought, well, it'll go easier on my, on a woman, on my mother. 
Um, and, you know, I suppose perhaps it did in the end. But, yeah, I think this, one of the sons doing it is a possibility. But, you know, I really go back and forth. Sometimes I thought to myself, well, maybe she had a psychic break. You know, maybe she did it and really doesn't remember that she did it. That seems unlikely, but, you know, because she says to the judge before, oh, my God, I am not guilty, and how she could not have done it herself and claim that so sincerely is hard to imagine. Certainly the sons had motives. Maybe they were protecting their mother. Maybe they, too, had been abused. It's interesting to me that none of them were publicly suspected or at least not mentioned by the neighbors after maybe the initial couple of days that the county attorney never arrested or spoke about one of the sons being a possible suspect. It was almost as if once they fixated on Margaret Hasek, she was the one he was going to go forward with. But again, in my mind, it seems hard to imagine her doing it. I mean, there was no clear trigger that we know of, and yet who knows what went on in her mind. Maybe it was like other battered women more in a more contemporary setting. It was her one opportunity, an opportunity to get out of a situation where she was afraid and feared for her own safety and that of her children. So I'm going to throw out this last tantalizing little bit to listeners. There was another possible suspect who lived not far from the Hossack farm. You mentioned his possible involvement in another crime in the area as well. Uh, yes, yes, yes. That That's an interesting story because we talked to a lot of people at um, in Indianola and around the farmhouse. Um, it's McCutcheon, I think, is who you're referring to, right? And right. We talked about, we talked to a lot of people in the community today. And they, in fact, I, I say in the book that we put an ad out saying who killed John Hasek. And I had a toll-free number. I wouldn't say we got a lot of information, although it is a place where people live for generations. So a lot of people knew about the murder, and there certainly was a hesitancy to talk to us. I think maybe because they thought we were trying to point a finger of guilt at some other person, maybe a family that, again, still lived in the area, and they didn't want to open it up again, um, as they said. But the lawyer, one of the lawyers we talked to, um, of course, who wasn't alive at the time, but his father had been, and he pointed us to this case. He was very hesitant to talk to us. In fact, he said he wouldn't stop us from finding out what we could, but he wasn't going to tell us anything. And he actually told us, I think I write this in the book, he told me that my life might be in danger if I continued to investigate, which was a bit scary. I mean, who? this is a hundred-year-old murder, and nothing ever came, fortunately. Um, nothing ever came from that. But yeah, he pointed us to this case and said, look into this case. And you're right, there was another case where there had been a mention of, if you don't stop 
libeling me or they were accusing each other of various crimes. I'll tell what I know about your involvement in that skull which was chopped open, some words like that. And, of course, it seemed, especially because a lawyer had pointed out this case, that there was another, you know, he knew this McCutcheon family, knew something about and maybe had been involved in the murder. You know, one thing, another hypothesis that we thought of is maybe someone in the family hired someone to kill John Hasek, paid someone, you know, and that might be what they were referring to. We'll tell about your role in this murder. You know, I will say also that one historian wrote, it's actually the son of the defense attorney. When he was writing about the history of Warren County, he does have a footnote, and he says, um, information has come to me after the end of the trial, which proves in my mind that Margaret Hasek was not guilty. Evidence that was not available at the time of the trial. I cannot say what it is here without injuring someone else's name, but I am convinced that she did not do it. Now, you know, his father was the defense attorney, but he was a journalist, and you have to give that, or I did, some credibility, uh, maybe because I wanted to believe she was innocent in some part of my mind. But yeah, there was that evidence that someone else knew something about it, and just as we found with contemporary residents, they didn't want to talk about it. There was sort of this code of silence, certainly I mean, not necessarily during the trial, but soon after. People didn't want to talk about it, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. Let's not open it up again. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed um, talking about this very much. It, it took up um, years of my life. And as I say, there's something addicting about going back to those century-old murders and trying to put together what happened. I know you've done that, too. <laughs> Absolutely. For people interested in learning more about your book in this case, where should we direct them to? Well, there is a website that we put together, which is midnightassassin.com. Um, and we have pictures on that website. Um, actually, they're mostly artist rendition of Margaret Hasek and um, John Hasek after he was killed. There is a lot of other information on that website. We have transcripts of all of the articles Susan Glaspell wrote. We have more information um, about the different people in the trial. Um, we have a, a long article I wrote before I wrote this book um, that was published in the Stanford Law Review. Um, it doesn't have so much detail about the case, but it does have a lot of, um, you know, more about Susan Glaspell and other aspects. Um, that's available on the website. Um, and then we have other information about Susan Glaspell. But I think people who are interested in the actual case um, will like seeing the pictures and the additional information we have about, oh, farm life and especially about the various 
characters who appear in the book. We have transcripts from the trial, testimony, transcripts, um, excerpts from the inquest, and we would have had to write several volumes about the case, um, but we do have a lot of that information about uh, on that website. And again, it's MidnightAssassin.com. That's it for this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenus, and have a safe tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.